Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We're still taking calls for our coronavirus hotline, and we've been hearing from inmates all across the country. We'll have more of the calls on our website and on next week's show, but we encourage you to get the word out to those you know on the inside so they can record a message about the impact of COVID-19 on the facilities they're in. That number is 765-343-6236. According to the Washington State Department of Corrections, more than 100 inmates demonstrated in the recreation yard at Monroe Correctional Complex in Monroe, Washington on Wednesday evening in response to six confirmed coronavirus cases among inmates. The demonstration has been described as a riot by staff, but is being named a disturbance by the Washington State Patrol who responded to the incident. An employee notes, quote, a protest coming from inmates in prison with many people congregated and organized, that's a riot. They can spin it any way they want. They locked every inmate down in all facilities because all available officers had to respond. My understanding is also that they were threatened to take hostages and to destroy property." End quote. Many inmates continued despite verbal warnings, pepper spray, sting balls, and rubber pellets. Inmates reportedly unloaded fire extinguishers and made threats of fire. There were no injuries to staff or any inmates. Two men ages 28 and 68, most recently identified as testing positive, were previously housed in the minimum security unit, which is the location of the first positive test of an inmate in the state's correctional system. The two men were transferred to an isolation unit on April 5th. Approximately 17 inmates are currently housed in the isolation unit. The remaining 111 incarcerated men in the minimum security unit are on protective isolation or quarantine as a preventative measure. The next day, dozens of prisoners seized control of their pod in Lansing Correctional in Kansas, protesting lack of medical care. At least 12 prisoners have tested positive for COVID-19 there. Prisoners destroyed guard offices and cameras and barricaded doors. The revolt was put down by guards early this morning. Here's a short bit of an audio clip from a video that a participant shot on a cell phone. Y'all don't want to give us no health care? Hey, y'all don't want to give us no health care? This is what we do. All y'all have to do is give us The Ote Mesa Detention Center in San Diego, California, which houses immigration and federal pre-child detainees, has confirmed six COVID-19 cases since last week. According to advocates, the company that runs the center, CoreCivic, has failed to adequately protect detainees as employees have spread the infection among the detained population. As of Tuesday, five employees have tested positive for COVID-19. One is now hospitalized. Inmates are reporting that guards are being misleading about danger of exposure. The American Civil Liberties Union of San Diego and Imperial Counties filed a lawsuit against the government last Friday attempting to secure the release of detainees who are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. Public defenders all over the country are fighting for the release of incarcerated people due to the pandemic and inmates' inability to socially distance. 
In California, Alameda County Public Defender Brandon D. Woods has called on the District Attorney's Office and County Justice stakeholders to immediately release all inmates with six months or less left to serve, as Santa Rita sees a massive surge in positive COVID-19 tests. There are an estimated 115 people currently serving time who are scheduled for release in the next six months. 59 are scheduled for release by the end of May. The first positive COVID-19 test at Santa Rita was announced last weekend. Now there are 10 more positive tests. In a press release published April 9th, Wood is quoted, quote, we want those people out right now. What possible justification can the DA offer to keep them locked up for three more weeks in the midst of a virus? A county jail sentence should not be a potential death sentence, end quote. Public defenders are recognizing a racial component in the healthcare system, similar to what is seen in criminal justice. As statistics show, African-Americans account for a larger percentage of deaths related to COVID-19. The public defender first made the request for releases March 12th. The district attorney's office only agreed to release inmates with 45 days or less left to serve, releasing 247 inmates. Additional releases are happening on a case-by-case basis, a procedure that public defenders emphasize cannot compete with the fast spread of the virus. Alameda County Courts have adopted a new statewide emergency bail schedule for April 13th that should result in the release of some pretrial detainees. This will not apply to those already convicted and serving jail time. The following is part of an audio interview from April 3rd that we received from a prisoner in Stateville, Joseph Dole, who talks about the situation there and a death of a fellow inmate. You can access the full audio on our website. Here he is. Yesterday, after 100 guys in the cell house started screaming for them to remove Larry's body, uh, I watched his body be wheeled out on a gurney in some type of body bag or wrapped in a sheet. You know, we were watching the the news and all the propaganda on the news, like from the beginning, they said, oh, we're passing out hand sanitizer and soap and everything else. And they didn't do any of that. They, the first, the only extra soap we've gotten was a single bar of dial soap. And they only brought that around after Russell passed away. And then one time they came around with a big thing of hand sanitizer and, and told us they can't give us any hand sanitizer, but if we, if we stick our hand out, they'll squirt some in our hand, but they have to watch us use it. And then they claimed that they were going to do this every day before the meals, but that was the only day they did it. That was like, yeah, like a couple of days ago, one time at night at, uh, before dinner. And, you know, the, we're watching, I forgot her name, but the doctor that's always with the governor, yeah. they, oh yeah, well, Stateville's, I think it's is he, is he or something like that. Yeah. But uh, in Gazi or something. They're like, oh, yeah, well, they were all isolated. You know, everybody that was positive was isolated. Well, you weren't testing anybody here forever, and you were moving everybody around, and you emptied out X House and put all those guys in X House that you didn't think looked too sick into other cell houses where they spread it more if they had it or weren't quarantined if they had it, and then you filled up X House with the you know the guys who looked like they were really sick but seemingly not sick enough to go to the actual hospital and then other guys you told you were going to take out of the house first you told them you were going to put them in the healthcare unit because x house was filled then you were going to put them in the visiting room because x house was filled then you said you were the national guard was building tents in the gym which 
National Guard hasn't even gotten here. They're supposedly getting here today. Now they're saying that they moved guys to F House, which F House was condemned and then cannibalized for um, parts for the sinks because you guys refused to order parts for the sinks and all of our sinks and toilets are constantly breaking over the last three years. Like, I don't think I've ever been in a, a cell that had a functioning toilet, hot water, and cold water all at the same time. And that's how everybody is in here. So it's like, you're you're not testing anybody, but you're constantly moving people around. Most of us who have shown the milder symptoms, we weren't moved or anything, so we're still passing the phones around and you haven't tested us, and then you're falsifying records. So, like, they've only taken our temperature twice. The second time they came to take our temperature the other day, they're taking mine and my silly's temperature, and then I hear the, the one nurse tell the other one, put down that they have no symptoms. Well, both me and my silly had both just been to the sick call the day before because we had symptoms, which the nurse documented downstairs and gave us medication, which, I mean, who knows what good that's going to do. They basically gave us Tylenol and like some cold tablets and then didn't put us in to see the medical director or anything. And, you know, you're, you're just arbitrarily trying to document, oh, these guys have no symptoms. You didn't ask us if we had any symptoms. You didn't check our medical charts if we had shown symptoms. You didn't even examine us, but you're telling someone to document that we have no symptoms. Well, it's nice to finally see uh, it makes the news and be considered a tragedy that one of us died in here. You know, every week people die in here in IDOC from over, uh, from like extreme inhumane sentencing and everything else. But only one of the two deaths from coronavirus in Stateville has even made the news. The coronavirus is, is attacking severely the you know, the older guys that have already suffered through three, four decades in prison or are already in their 60s and, you know, they they can't deal with it because their immune system's even, you know, more battered than if they were out on the streets where they could have led healthy lives. They're in here where even the CDC says, you know, incarceration on its own basically takes off a decade of your life. I'm sitting here just listening to, to guys scream for medics and, you know, watching bodies being taken out. You need to address the, the true ills of mass incarceration and nonviolent offenders or drug cases are not what's driving mass incarceration. The extreme inhumane sentencing for violent crimes is what's driving mass incarceration. We end this episode with a conversation we had with Kelsey Kaufman, a longtime prisoner advocate, teacher, and researcher. Kelsey and others have written a detailed plan for combating the mass fatalities currently facing those on the inside due to the coronavirus. You can see the plan on our website, wfhb.org forward slash kiteline. Now here's Kelsey. So my name is Kelsey Kaufman. I have a background working in prisons. I was a correctional officer back in the early 1970s, so about 50 years ago at a women's prison in Connecticut. And then I went to graduate school and wrote about prison officers and the devastating effect that working in prisons has on prison officers. And then since then, I've mostly done research on prisons. I've taught in four different prisons and most recently at the Indiana Women's Prison where I started the college program in 2012 and and ran it for five years. And now 
I'm retired, but continue working very closely with dozens of women who were my students at the prison, and now we work together now that we're out. I think what KiteLine wanted me to talk about was COVID-19 and the impact that the virus is going to have on correctional institutions. And we have felt very strongly from February on that the people who are probably at the greatest risk in the United States are people who are in prison. So on March the 5th, we wrote a letter that was signed by 100 people who were formerly incarcerated or um, had worked in prisons or reentry. And we wrote that letter to Governor Eric Holcomb in Indiana, asking him to direct the Indiana Department of Corrections to compile a list of who in the department, who was incarcerated, who was at, was at the highest risk of dying from COVID-19, according to criteria that had been established by the CDC. So that was the very first week of March. Uh, I think we were the first ones in the country to begin addressing this two state officials saying how deeply worried we were that they would be unable to prevent or control the virus in prisons and jails, and that there are so many people in prisons and jails and immigration detention centers who aren't healthy, um, who will be on the CDC's list of people at very high risk of dying. We're very anxious that those people be gotten out of harm's way. And we got no response at all from the governor. And finally, three weeks later, after the Indianapolis Star, which is the main paper in Indianapolis, the reporters started asking questions about why there had been no response. And basically, the response that we got was that they, they had this under control and we were not to worry about this, that they were cleaning things and providing soap to people, et cetera. And um, it was really kind of patting us on the head and saying, you don't have to worry about this. And we think that they are exactly wrong and that the people who will pay the price for that, not in the hundreds, but perhaps in the thousands and nationally in the tens of thousands, will be people who are trapped inside those institutions. We decided then that we would write a very specific proposal, very detailed proposal about how the state of Indiana could release up to 25% of the people who are in Indiana prisons and to do so in a way that would be not disruptive to the communities outside. It would, it would include a really good reentry component of it, um, but it, it would be orderly, but it would get people out immediately because not only are we worried about those who have a specific and very definite risk of dying from the disease. But in general, we want to get out as many people as possible so that, first of all, there'll be room to um, space people out, room to isolate. And also because prisons will become, we think, unmanageable as the employees themselves become sick or fail to come because they're worried about becoming sick and infecting their families or are dealing with family members who themselves are sick. And, and we've seen that now in a lot of places in New York. I think Rikers Island is the one that, that is kind of foremost in people's mind. And last week, Rikers Island had 231, I think it was, confirmed cases of COVID-19, but they had an equal number of confirmed cases among employees. So this is an, an interesting thing where Employees' interests are very much actually aligned with the people in, who are inside the prisons. Uh, so that's basically what led us to do the plan, to write to the governor at the beginning of March, and then to follow up with this detailed plan. One of our great worries is that the, um, the each prison and jail will maximize their infection curve. That you know the whole advice to, to us, not just as individuals, but as a whole country, are to distance ourselves from other people so that we can flatten the curve of, of infections so that it doesn't 
uh, use up all of the healthcare resources. And so we are very worried about the fact that you cannot do that in a prison or a jail, that people are, uh, can't distance themselves, that the virus will spread through their like welfare, just as it did, for example, uh, has on the USS Roosevelt. Uh, I think that's actually the most comfortable institution or facility or unit or whatever, even more so than cruise ships that the captain of the USS Roosevelt realized that there was no way that they could stop the virus from infecting virtually everybody. So that's the problem with prisons and jails, that they will maximize their infection curve and that the officers and the other employees will also maximize their infection curve and at the same time, and that the combination of the two was likely to overwhelm the outside resources, health resources, hospitals, and you know other kind of care that they can get. And so we've already seen this at Stateville, which is in Illinois. And there are so many cases at Stateville that they have taken up all of the beds and all of the ventilators in the local hospital. The director of that hospital was saying, we can't do this. You know, We have to have these facilities available to the local community. And he projected that 100 or more of the men at Stateville were likely to die. This is terribly worrisome because there is, I think, a tendency on the part of lots of people in our society to think, well, if we have to choose between having you know, person A who is not in a prison uh, getting a ventilator and person B who is in, in a prison that will give it that they'll give it to A every time. And that leaves people in prison in really dire straits because we know that a certain percentage of people who contract COVID-19 are not going to survive unless they get in hospital care often in ICU care on a ventilator. This has been one of our really major concerns, and it's the thing that I've been so disappointed nationwide that policymakers, officials have not grasped, or if they have grasped it, that they don't care. We have two goals with the plan. One is to bring down the absolute number of people who are in a prison or a jail, and the other is to protect those people who are most at risk. And then there's the third one, which is also to protect the officers and the employees, but that's an easier one to think through. So thinking about that first group, which is people who are at the highest risk of dying, that's anybody over the age of 65 and anyone who has certain diseases, pre-existing medical conditions that the CDC has identified. And the plan there is, is to try and get those people out of harm's way, not just to release them because for a lot of people being released doesn't protect them from getting the virus. Part of the plan there is to find safe places for people who are at high risk where they can quarantine when they're out. And if that can be with a family, that's fine. And if it can't, then putting them through quarantine so that we know they don't have the virus and then putting them into settings where they can stay free of the virus. The more difficult problem, in a sense, is how to rapidly reduce the number of people in a prison and at the same time have something better than them just going out the door. You've know, got to have some kind of a way of protecting people outside if all the people or most of the people inside already have the virus and you know, just to provide reentry services so people aren't just dumped out there. So what we proposed was that governments and you know, judges and governors or wherever figure out who they feel that they can release in large numbers that won't be perceived as being being you know, reckless or whatever. We identified for Indiana two major groups. The first is people who have less than a year to serve. So they've got less than 12 months and they've already served at least 50% of their sentence. So these are people who are going to be back on the streets anyway, fairly soon. So it turns out that 21% of all the people who are in prison in Indiana, in prisons, not jails, but in prisons in Indiana, 21% have less than 12 months to serve and they've already served half of their time. And that was a group that we said, this is perfectly reasonable, you know, responsible, et cetera 
just let just let all of those people out. Now I'll get to what we're going to do with them. But there's a second group, and in Indiana, and this wouldn't apply to most other states, there are a lot of people who are still in our prisons, about 2,000, who if they had been sentenced under the new criminal statute, which was adopted in 2014, they'd already be out of there. So that was another group, and that brought us up to 25%. Okay, so Indiana has a prison population of 23,000. So if we're going to release 25% of people, we're talking about a lot going out the door at one time. So Indiana, like every other state, has a lot, a lot of empty housing space right now. We have hotels and motels that are empty, many of them closed. Um, The ones who are open have occupancy rates of lower than 10%. We also have lots of college dorms that are empty. And we have places like religious retreats and campgrounds and all those things. So we have thousands and thousands of empty beds right now. So the proposal is really simple, that you want to release everybody as quickly as you possibly can, because the purpose of it is to create more space within the prisons. And so we proposed that you take either hotels, motels, or college dormitories, and you put everybody who you're releasing in quarantine for at least two weeks, probably three. And for those people who would say, you know, what, we're going to put people coming out of prisons, we're going to put them in hotels. We have several, I think, really well thought out responses to that. And one of them is the proposal is to lock them in their room for 14 days to 21 days, and they cannot come out of those rooms because they have their own bathrooms. And I don't think very many people would think that actually is a very good deal. I don't care, you know, how comfortable that bed may be and how pretty the curtains or whatever. Most of us would not sign up for three weeks in a locked hotel room. The reason for choosing in my view, a hotel or a motel over a college dormitory is that it's important when you're quarantining people that they're not sharing a bathroom. We could slap thousands of people in hotels with long corridors, with, with already have cameras set up for surveillance that already have the, the beds are all made, they've got linens and they've got bathrooms, etc. And, and you could do really good quarantine during that time. Now, while they're quarantined, you could also do very effective re-entry services, re-entry planning. Now, Keep in mind that most of those people had less than 12 months to go. So most of them already have a reentry plan in mind. A lot of them already have reentry plans in writing. So at the end of that two or three week period, during which we could be in touch with teams, in touch with everybody who's in those hotel rooms, buy the phone that's in that in that room. We don't have to buy like burner phones for them or anything. They've got them right in those rooms that we can be doing those intensive reentry services and have most of the people going out we, where we knew that now that they are virus-free, they go back to their home communities and, and you know, just you know, do as, as all the rest of us are doing now who are out. During that two to three-week period, um, a, a certain percentage of people will come down with the virus. And one of the things that we envision is having have a multi-story hotel, uh, which would really be ideal. You can have certain floors which are designated as quarantine, and then other floors higher up that have people who are symptomatic. And that allows us to monitor them, make sure that they're in isolation, but that they're receiving medical assistance and allow us to identify people who need to get to hospitals. And then once they're finally over it, majority of them, then we would keep them just as long as it takes to make sure that they are no longer infectious and relieve, and, and then have, have those people leave and go. So that leaves us then with people who are, and this would be, you know, a, a, quite a significant percentage of people who, who don't have any place really good to go during a pandemic. And what we envisioned with them was taking over places like like college dorms or campgrounds, you know, we're coming into warm weather, 
uh, retreat centers, places like that, and trying to provide services. The group that I personally uh, would worry about the most in this scenario, other than the ones who you know, would be at, at danger of, of dying from the virus, would be people who have substance abuse issues. And we know that they're at greatest risk of dying in the two weeks after release. And that's even when they do have reentry planning. And one of the problems right now is that, at least here in Indiana, we've found that most drug treatment places aren't taking anybody new in, especially people coming from prisons and jails, because they know that the viruses are already there. And so they don't want to infect the people who are, who are already in their housing. And so we propose then that we try to establish as many substance abuse programs for everybody who is, is coming out to, to really meet this head on. Now, this is an expensive proposal, but we've just passed a $2 trillion package. And if we were to do this program, think about what that stimulus money would do. First of all, it would allow us to create really important safety level space within our prisons and allow the officer corps that is able to work, that they'll be able to assist with the people who are inside. So that's, in the long run, going to be a huge savings. The second thing is that we're using that stimulus money to help save our hotel and motel industries, that they could not only receive you know, a substantial payment for having these 5,000 people coming out of, out of prisons for the people who are there, but it also would allow them to rehire lots of staff, and, and, and in a way that doesn't risk that staff greatly, because remember that almost everybody who's in this model is staying in their rooms the entire time, it's 24-7, and it allows them to rehire all of their kitchen and restaurants. So my ideal would actually be to, to choose places that have convention center level of food preparation, and that also means that people would be already certified in safe serve and would know how to be preparing meals in a way that, that would protect those who are in quarantine from getting infected. So there's a tremendous amount of trickle down on this. You know, the $2 trillion includes billions for law enforcement and billions for stimulus of businesses, et cetera. So we think this will work really well. It would be a win on many, many different levels. I know that the plan has been shared a lot because we've heard from people all over the country who are, are thinking of implementing it. I mean, their own variation on it. You know, the great worry is that states eventually will implement it and they'll do it way too late, that they're going to do it when they all of a sudden realize, uh oh, this is a problem that's out of hand. It's really out of control. And they're going to cost themselves dearly by doing that because, you know, at some point you're going to have to assume that everybody who's inside the prison has been exposed to the virus, whether they're symptomatic or not, and that all of them are potentially infectious. There are, are different groups all over the country that are beginning to look at this as, as a possible plan, and they're making improvements on it. So one of the things that some folks in Boston came up with as an idea is that one of our problems is we don't have enough tests, and we're not going to have enough tests in the time when we really need them. And so you can do group testing. You can use one test and test like 60 people using that one test. And what the results will tell you is if you definitely have somebody positive among those 60. So I don't think that there are, are false positives with these tests. Now, there are lots of false negatives, about 25%. But let's say you decide that hotels 
and motels are e- either out of the question in terms of finances or just, you know, the kind of political optics of the whole thing, et cetera, that what you do is you, you could use college dormitories or retreat centers or whatever and takes groups of people coming out of a, of a prison, you know, preferably people who've already been housed together because, you know, they're likely either all to be infectious or none. Test them with the one test and then have, you know, 10 of them using, you know, maybe in individual rooms and using the same bathroom facilities or even, you know, 10 of them together. And it'll mean that many more of your people will get infected because if only one person in that group is infectious and the other nine are going to get it. it. It's a poor person's version of quarantining. But it is something that you could do that would be a lot better than nothing. It just means you'd be quarantining for a lot longer time because then at, at the end of that two-week period or three-week period, you'd have to restart a whole lot of people if you had one person who was symptomatic. I am looking forward to people all across the country improving on the model. You know, one of the things I like to say that during a pandemic, there's no such thing as plagiarism. There's only results. So I hope people will take it, use it as their own parts that are useful and you know, discard parts that aren't and improve upon it. And hopefully let the rest of us know that you're doing that. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.